Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of study around the table of your word. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who is already here, working in us, enabling us to dig deeper into your word, to behold you and become more like Jesus, to bear his image and likeness. Father, I pray for your enabling grace to work in us, that we might be doers of your word, that we might be transformed, be blessed, and even become a blessing unto others. We give you glory, we give you honor and praise. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, tonight we're going to be speaking about obedience, a matter of the heart. Amen. Obedience, a matter of the heart. We're going to open up with uh, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 19. In the very first chapter of his book, the prophet Isaiah tells us that those who are willing and obedient will eat of the good of the land. What he's saying here is that both willingness and obedience are necessary. Notice he says those who are willing and obedient will eat the good of the land. So willingness and obedience are necessary. They go hand in hand and one without the other does not work. You see, with God, it has always been, and it will always be, a heart issue. Each of us is engaged in spiritual battle between God's forces and the forces of our enemy, who is known as the devil. The Spirit of the Lord, however, is moving throughout the whole earth, looking for a certain type of person to follow him, to love him, to serve him. Amen. One whose heart is perfect toward him. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9 tells us so. It says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Amen. So whenever the Holy Spirit finds such character in a child of God, then he delights to show himself strong in that person's behalf. Openly manifesting his power and approval in that person's life. So obedience is truly a matter of the heart. Now, how we, do we obtain and maintain a perfect heart, in especially in times like ours? You know, we are living in times when the battle for the soul of man is intensifying dramatically. And this battle is being fought in every individual, in every church, in every city, and every nation. And um, 
God foreseeing this inspired Paul to write a letter to Timothy uh, describing the times ahead, times that are to come, in which he defines as perilous times. Amen. And this is what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse, verse 1. Actually, we're going, I'm going to read from verse 1 through verse, four, verse 5. It says, But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. Amen. So, that's quite a long list, and I'm sure we could go on. Praise God. However, um, uh, this, I believe, pretty much illustrates our age, uh, which Jesus also prophesied of when he said uh, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12 that there will come a time when iniquity shall abound and the love of many will grow cold. Amen. Another word for iniquity here is the word lawlessness. Amen. And I believe that for most people, at least, the, the, the prospect of fighting spiritual battles has never been easy. It's never been something that we are looking forward to. And the difficult environment nowadays make it all the more necessary for us to be ready to wage a good warfare by living the perfect, having a perfect heart as God desires of us. Amen. Actually, having a perfect heart before God is one of the major ways to fight our battle. Most of the battle is taken care of if we just know how to have that perfect heart before the Lord and how to walk in obedience to him. So the desire to follow the Lord with a perfect heart actually takes all a person has to give. The Bible tells us, for example, that Abraham was that kind of person, that he had such a heart. He accepted the challenges facing him, and at a point in his life, he arrived at a high place of spiritual growth. Uh, James chapter 2, 23, uh, says this of Abraham. He says, and the scripture 
was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Hallelujah. So we see that Abraham came a long way to reach that place where he had complete faith in God and followed God to the point where God called him his friend. And I, I, I think we all agree that uh, we are getting close to the finishing line. And with each passing day, we are drawing nearer to the completion of the purpose of God for mankind. However, the message has not changed. The same directive God gave to Abraham is what he is instructing every person who desires to be part of what he's doing. Uh, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Amen. Can you imagine coming to a 99-year-old person and requiring something that is so high from them at, at 99? Nowadays, they tell you that once you're past a certain age, that it's no use trying to learn anything or, you know, acquire any new habits because the way you are is the way you're always going to stay. Well, that proves to us that it is wrong because God visited Abraham actually the first time he was, he was 75 years old. And which is a very, you know, an old age. And yet we see how Abraham grew in faith that right now God visits him 25 years later, 24 years later, and says to him, walk before me and be perfect. And, you know, we must not make light of the word, the word walk before me and perfect, because this is how we too will fulfill our roles in the spiritual battle of the day-to-day -day trials now and in facing the symbolizes obedience. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, Jesus made this statement. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There are some who take up the cross and focus only on what it means to suffer and live a life of sacrifice. 
light of that. However, in this verse, the cross is not the end result. The cross enables us. It empowers us to obey God. Because, you know, there are some who live a life of self-denial and sacrifice, and yet they don't really follow Christ. They don't follow God. They are still in rebellion against God. And the reason being that it all starts with the heart. Amen. And it's important to us to locate what is the condition of our heart. In essence, what Jesus was saying when he said, when he made that statement, all had to do with obedience, taking up on the cross and following him daily. Amen. So, the only way we can obey is to take up the cross. For without death to our own agenda and death to our own desires, we will eventually have a confrontation between the will of God and our own personal selfish will and desire. And if we do not lay down our lives, we will find a way of fulfilling our own will and regrettably even use scriptures to back it up. That's why we find so many people out there claiming to be Christians who have a form of godliness about them, but the power of God the is not displayed in their lives. It takes more than outward, the outward expression of what we want to portray to humanity. It's easy, it's easy to put up an act. What God is looking for is the heart. Amen. If we are serious with having a perfect heart before God, we must therefore concentrate, focus on our ultimate model, who is our Lord Jesus himself. And in looking at his life and what he has accomplished and is still accomplishing in our lives in this world, we can summarize it by saying that Jesus only did what his father, what he saw his father do. And he actually, he said that. And in uh, John chapter 5 and verse 19, he stated quite plainly that he says, I have come to do the will of him that sent me. Hallelujah. Jesus was on mission. It was not about him. And we even noticed in the, in the way that he carried himself and, he, he, and the way he functioned, he operated in his ministry. You know, when he ministered, for example, to those who were sick, 
those who needed deliverance or just needed his help, as, for example, when the disciples needed to pay their taxes. Jesus always had the unique and perfect solution for each person and each situation. And he didn't, he wasn't following formulas. He wasn't trying to be ingenious. He simply did what he saw his father do. Amen. So regardless of the hardship, our call is to depend on the grace of God and to learn to lean on him and deny ourselves. Romans chapter 15 and verse 1 tells us that we ought not to plead ourselves. And very importantly, we must also become established in the reality that our faith works only by love. Amen. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6 tells us that, that faith works by love. So anything that is effective, that is acceptable to God, begins with not pleasing ourselves. I know that this is not a popular message. People don't want to hear this, but this is what it's going to, going to take, amen, if we really want to have this perfect heart before God, be doers of this word and walk in obedience. Hallelujah. And this automatically impacts our success in life. So this is not something that we can uh, take lightly. The very first thing that we, need, we, we have got to do is to learn to say no to the carnal man. You know, the carnal man always seeks to assert itself. And it's impossible to be a self-pleaser and at the same time to be a Christ-pleaser. In Jesus' own words, he says, we cannot serve two masters. Amen. Either we're going to hate the other and love the other but vice, and vice versa, but we cannot love two different masters. We have to understand that the world and Christianity are complete opposites. And uh, every day pre presents um, each believer an, an opportunity to take up his cross. And if we use the opportunity given to us by God, then we can say that we, we have a victorious day. And if we don't, then we have a day of defeat. But, you know, Jesus, just as Jesus laid down his life voluntarily, now that we have the mind of Christ, if indeed we are his, we have his mind. The Bible tells us that we have the mind of Christ. 
we now um, must be willing to put off the old man and to put on the new man. You know, the flesh has nothing good to give anybody. And it must be dealt with before the life of Christ can flow out of us. Our, our cross as a God-given opportunity should be considered an opportunity. Amen. And not a disaster. It's an opportunity for us to develop the character of Christ in our lives. And the principle of taking up our cross and denying ourselves daily, and I keep repeating daily, not just once in a while, we wake up every day and we take up our cross. Amen. And um, that principle of denying ourselves is the exact opposite of the way our natural mind thinks or it wor or works. And so there must be a willingness. That's why we are told that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen. You know, going back to Abraham speaks of his heart attitude. Amen. To do this something so difficult, nearly impossible if it were not for the grace of God, hallelujah, to go get up without, you know, any delay and to want to carry out God's instructions. You know, strange but true. Isaiah was God's gift to Abraham and Sarah in every sense of the word. Yet, the very child that God had given them, God was asking them to give it back to him as a burnt sacrifice. And Abraham promptly obeyed. We find in the book of um, Hebrews, in chapter 11, um, verses 17 through 19, um, they elaborate on, on what happened there with Abraham. And this is how it, sum, it summarizes this. It's, it says, accounting that God, that is Abraham was accounting that God was able to raise him, that is Isaac, up even from the dead. So this is to the, the point of faith that Abraham had reached, that God tells me to do something, I'm going to obey him. And I have to trust him, knowing that because he gave me a promise, that he's going to keep that promise no matter what. So if he wants me to sacrifice my son, in that case, it must be that he's going to raise him up. And so we are told in that same chapter, Genesis chapter 2, 22, uh, verses 15 through 17, we are told of God's response to Abraham's obedience. And 
it's summarized in these few words. God told him, I will bless you. I will multiply thy seed. Amen. I will bless you. I will multiply thy seed. What was Abraham's seed? Well, in the natural, we can say it was Isaac. But you see, the lesson for us here is that if Abraham had held on to Isaac, all he would have had was Isaac. But when he willingly gave up Isaac, he got Isaac back in an exponential way. In other words, he not only got Isaac, but his the descendants that came from Isaac, that is the nation of Israel. And most importantly, the Messiah. Because this was the most of, if I can say, the main objective of that testing of Abraham. It was the main objective in asking Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt sacrifice. You know, in Genesis 12 and verse 3, the Lord had told Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth would not be blessed by Isaac, but by the one coming from Isaac who would be the Messiah. Hallelujah. And that is why when Abraham was up there on that mountain uh, offering up Isaac, amen, and he didn't have time to carry out the sacrifice, so we praise God for that. But Abraham, Jesus says of Abraham that Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. When Abraham was on that mount, he saw the day of Christ. He prophesied and said, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. When the son asked him, Father, I see the wood, I see the, you know, everything, but where is the sacrifice? I think it began to dawn on Isaac that he might be it, the sacrifice. Amen. But Abraham answered, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. And Jesus, in John 8, I believe in verse 56, picks up on this and says, Abraham saw my choice. So, to the list of what Abraham got back, was not just Isaac, but his descendants, the nation of Israel, he got the Messiah and the church. Hallelujah. You and I, because of Abraham's obedience, we are here today. And this is a manifestation of the word of God, which prom- promises us uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can think or ask for according to his spirit at work in us. Hallelujah. So we see that faith is received as a gift. Amen. The faith that we have, we are given that measure of faith, the Bible tells us. But it is matured by walking in steps of obedience. 
Romans chapter 4 speaks about the steps of faith of Abraham. And it reveals, uh, Romans 4 reveals Abraham's obedience to God and his diligence in following through. And um, let me go ahead and read actually that passage. I'm going to start from Romans 4 verse 17. And we're going to read to verse 21. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. That is God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed. So that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Amen. Hallelujah. So what are the faith, the steps of faith here of Abraham? We see that Abraham called those things that be not as though they are. For example, he called himself Abraham, followed God's instruction to change his name, from Abraham to Abraham, which means father of many nations. So he called those things that be not as though they are. Hallelujah. And he tells us in verse 15 that contrary to hope, in hope, he believed. And he was not weak in faith by not. What he did is that he chose not to consider his own body that the Bible tells us what was already already dead in a sense that he was already, you know, an old man. He was a hundred years old. And also he did not consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. Sarah, Sarah was past the age of childbearing and on the top of it, she had been barren all her life. And so he did not also waver at the promise of God through unbelief. But he kept strengthening himself by giving glory to God. Hallelujah. Thanking, praising God before he received the miracle in the natural. Hallelujah. And this allowed him to become, in verse 21, fully convinced. So he started out with doubts, just like everybody would have doubts. Actually, even more, much more so seeing the challenges that he was facing. But now the Bible tells you that he's fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. And God accounted it to him for righteousness. Amen. Hallelujah. So Abraham did not start out being fully persuaded, but he took a step of faith. Hallelujah. With every challenge, every step of the way, hallelujah, he used, he, he, he used that opportunity to trust God even more and his faith grew progressively grew and 
being willing to sur- to obey, to surrender, hallelujah, is what the Lord is telling us is that is so foundational to our faith. You know, we are told in the Bible not to lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge God and he shall direct our path. Hallelujah. And, you know, as we do that, we realize that truly the flesh profits nothing. And it is the spirit who gives life. So the things that we think are maybe good and right are the result of our own human attempts sometimes to do the right thing, to help God out. And when we do that, that ends up in the biggest disasters. And so is the the case. I think Abraham learned uh, the hard way Um, in wanting to help God out. In haste, he had a child with his wife's maid servant. And uh, that child was a child of expediency. And any time we settle for less than God's best, then we are going to live to regret it. When people rebel against God, what happens is that they, they give legal right for the powers of darkness, for demonic powers to influence and control their lives. You see, there is, uh, God has ordained laws of order in the spiritual realm. And un- under his divine law, the devil's authority has been restricted to the realm of darkness. Therefore, when, if we disobey, if we are walking in disobedience to God's authority, whether it's directly or, you know, we, it is delegated, then that moves the person out of spiritual light and into spiritual darkness where the enemy has legal access. Again, remember, Jesus himself says that no one can serve two masters. Amen. And in, you know, we are told, Jesus, I mean, the, the, in First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 5, we are told that we are sons of light. If we are in Christ, we are sons of light. Amen. Sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. So there is no reason why we need to put ourselves in a situation where we give access to the, you know, to our life, uh, to the enemy. Amen. And so uh, we find, unfortunately, that in these last days, there are those who walk in rebellion and yet think of themselves as free. There is no freedom ever in rebellion. Those who rebel become slaves to depravity. And the, the, the book of Peter, Second Peter, chapter 2, verses 18 to 19, 
describes this. You know, it, uh, let me go ahead and read that passage. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 19. For when they, that is the false teachers, speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So you see, the false teachers are coming to deceive the body of Christ. And this is what verse 19 says. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Amen. So, the truth is evident that there is no freedom in rebellion, but rather bondage and control of the enemy over people's lives. Rebellion is the opening of the soul to demonic possession and control. And we, we just said that um, immediate obedience is one of the characteristics of people who have a heart for God. Amen. So the Lord really is reminding us as uh, he mentioned his, um, in the book of Acts, that uh, Acts 17 and verse 30, where he tells us that the times of ignorance got wintered, but now he commendeth all men to repent. And especially in light of the times that we are living in, we cannot afford to just live anyhow. Amen. We have to make an inventory and deter determine our heart condition and whether or not we are really sold out to the Lord and we want to follow him no matter what. Amen. You know, there is a parable of, um, that Jesus told of um, the marriage supper that I believe is a clear illustration of people who call themselves Christians, but they refuse to submit to God. That parable is found in Matthew chapter 24, verses 2 through 14. Um, it talks about, uh, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, uh, which made who, you know, a marriage for his son. In other words, he was having a reception for his son's uh, wedding. And he sent his servants to call those who had been invited. But what happened is that the, these, the invited ones refused to come. They would not come. Actually, uh, some of those, um, the servants were even uh, murdered by, by the, the, the invited guests who refused to attend the wedding. That's rather strange. But uh, if you see, if you understand uh, the message behind this parable, it's quite there's quite a lot to it. But we're not going to focus on that. What I want to focus on is that when they refused to come, the king um, sent his servants 
He says, go in the highways and byways and gather together as many as you find and, you know, bring them in. And usually, well, according to the customs of that time, when people came in, they gave you a ceremonial garment to wear. And so uh, the guests did come, those that they gathered in the highways and byways. And, um, but when the king looked around, he saw that one of the guests was not wearing any you know, wedding garment. And starting in verse 12, let me go ahead and, and read for you what happened. And he, that is the king, says unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servant, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Amen. Now, as I said, there are many lessons to, in this parable here. But what I want us to focus on is this man who was brought in from the highways and was provided a wedding attire, as it was customary then. And so there was no reason for him not to be properly dressed. And this is a, 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 an image, a picture I believe of those nowadays, or should I say those who are part of the body of Christ, who having begun in the spirit, are made righteous by obeying God's requirement for salvation. And then after that, now they are, not that they feel that they are, I, I hate to use this expression, but, you know, fireproof. In other words, you're not going to go to hell. You have your ticket to heaven. Well, now that they are assured that this is what's going to happen, from this point on, they decide to live by the flesh, doing what they want and not what God demands of them. You know, we are told in James chapter 4 and verse 6 that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the hum humble. Amen. Therefore, we are told, submit to God, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So, in the end of this parable here, we see what happened to the guest who was not properly dressed. He was bound, taken away, and cast into outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. And, you know, Jesus will come to earth. He will come again for his church. And this is going to happen at the end of the church age. But in the meantime, there's also an enemy called Satan who has schemes up his sleeves to disrupt God's purposes. And this enemy rules those who belong to him, who have not surrendered their lives to Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, instructs those who are born again 
about their freedom. And let me read that passage, Ephesians 2, verses 1, 2, 3. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Amen. So the Bible makes it very clear that there was a time when this is what we were, what we just were here. We were sons of disobedience. We walked according to the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience and we were fulfilling the desires of the, the flesh. In other words, we were under Satan's rule. But praise God, now we are free. We are free and we now belong to God. However, Satan rules the realm that God had originally committed to Adam's authority. When Adam sinned and failed, he surrendered his rule of the world. He turned it over to Satan. However, his rule extends only to those who are disobedient to God. Amen. When men and women return to God with true repentance, with faith and submission, they break Satan's legal claim over them. And another thing that we have to understand is that Satan's control over mankind is limited. Uh, the, the, the fallen angels, that is those who had joined him in, 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 the, in the rebellion, uh, are completely submitted to his control. However, people's submission to him expressed in, by their disobedience to God is only limited. It's partial. Why do I say that? Because the Holy Spirit is the restraining force. And he is working in the hearts of men and women to bring about, to effect repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, which prevents Satan from taking complete control of humanity. So, the Holy Spirit is here operating through people, uh, to, to human channels, to keep Satan's power in check. You know, left alone, the human race, because of man's fallen nature and his bent towards sin and rebellion, would completely follow Satan. But we praise God by his grace and mercy. We have the Holy Spirit moving in the heart of men and women, directing them to repent and seek God. Hallelujah. And the enemy has really, um, he has two primary objectives. He wants to gain um, political control of the earth, and he wants to acquire or receive worship, the worship of the world. And he does that by distracting men's attention so that he can be worshipped and 
And to do that, to accomplish that, he seeks out someone to grant him that political power to control the world. And we will see at the end, this is what the Antichrist is all about. The, this man, the son of perdition, who will arise. And he, it was with that aim that he tempted Jesus. When we read about Jesus' temptation, uh, when he went, you know, he was there fasting 40 days and 49. And, he, you know, we read in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 of Jesus' temptation. Well, it was with that aim of wanting to gain political control and to be worshipped that he tempted Jesus and he offered uh, power in exchange for Jesus' praise. And as we approach the fulfillment of um, God's objectives on earth, we also come closer to the fulfillment of the goals of Satan. But as stated in scripture, these goals will ultimately be thwarted. Amen. We know the end of the story. There will be an Antichrist. However, we know who wins the final battle. We know that Christ comes back to the earth. We know that there will be a millennium kingdom. We know that there will be a new heaven and a new earth where dwells only righteousness. Hallelujah. So God wins the final battle. Praise God. But in the meantime, while we are here, we have our battle to fight. Amen. And the key to it is how to remain obedient, to be obedient and remain constantly obedient to God. The spirit of God and the spirit of the world are completely opposite. Amen. And it's only by the spirit of God that we know the things that are given to us by God. The Bible tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, amen, that uh, the Spirit of God shows us, amen, um, the, the, no, we, we know by the Spirit of God the things that have been freely given to us by, by God. Hallelujah. And so if we do not position ourselves to hear from God through his word and by the Holy Spirit and to be quick to obey, we will become slow to grasp spiritual truth. And this lack of spiritual growth and understanding will be reflected in carnality. You know, the word of God has the power, if we give it priority in our life, to produce a change in our life, in our spirit, in our soul, in our body, in our circumstances. Amen. Um, Hebrews chapter 4 says that the word of God is alive. It is sharp. It is sharp, powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces even to the um, division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Amen. Hallelujah. The word is more powerful it is a, than anything that the enemy can can dish out. The word is alive. Alive. The word pierces spirit, soul, and body, bringing the changes that God himself wants to operate in our lives. But if we allow ourselves, rather than being impressed with the word, but 
to focus on, pay attention to, and be impressed with what the world thinks. And if we adhere to the standards and to the values of the world, then we become slaves to it. Amen. So we have to learn how to focus um, on the things that are eternal. Amen. We have to spend enough time with the Lord that he changes our heart. He changes this disposition that the, you know, the flesh wants only the things of the world. Well, the one that is in us, the spirit of God dwelling in us is greater than he that is in the world. So we can be totally changed and transformed by the word so that our focus will be on the things that are eternal. Amen. Not the things that are passing away. The world is passing away with everything in it. Amen. So the Bible tells us that we are to focus on the things that are eternal. Second Corinthians 4.18, it says, We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Amen. Hallelujah. So the spirit of the world is a spirit of error. And it, it, it is completely opposite to the spirit of God, which is the spirit of truth. And the spirit of God reveals the things of God and focuses on Jesus, while the spirit of the world mocks the things of God and focuses on men. And the spirit of God convicts of sin, of righteousness and judgment, while the spirit of this world denies the real lasting significance of these things. So we cannot love both the world and God. First John 2.15 tells us that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And let us remember that one day we will all give an account to God. Amen. In John, um, the epistle of John, chapter 2, and verse 16, we are told that all that is in the, in the world uh, is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And they are not of the Father, but they are of, of the world. According to the Bible, all temptation takes on these three forms. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if we look at how Satan tempted Eve, we see those, these three elements present. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, we read that the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Hmm. Eve had had this conversation with the serpent and unfortunately believed in the lies 
in his life. So she moved from a position of faith to one of relying on the sense realm. She was relying on what she saw with her natural eyes. Notice that she saw that the food that the that the the the, the, the fruit was good for food. In other words, this is the lust of the flesh. Food, wanting to eat, satisfy the flesh. And now she also saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. This is the lust of the eyes. And desirable to make one wise to be. She's been tempted to be like God. This is what Satan told her. So now we see the pride of life. So, what do we need to remember in all of this? The lesson that we learn from this is that Satan is a master of deception. Jesus says that he was not only a deceiver, but he was also the father of it, the father of deception. And Jesus also warned that his delusions and deception would become so strong in the latter days that if it were possible, that even the elect would fall prey to them. Amen. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, compared the believer's uh, vulnerability to deception with the deception of Eve. He says that, Paul says that, I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Amen. That, is, um, that passage is found in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. So we see that Eve was beguiled into disobedience, but it was a different story from, for Adam. Uh, we know from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, that Adam knew exactly what he was doing. He was not deceived. He transgressed. But in general, the majority of people, like Eve, are deceived to ignorance. And that is why it is so crucial for us to get into God's word so we can know the truth. Because only the truth can shut off the enemy. Hallelujah. Praise God. And, you know, the essence of that, this temptation was the desire for independence from God. And think of it. You know, there's really nothing in this created universe that has any right to be independent from its creator, that is God. So we need to focus more on God, more on the way he sees us than the way we see ourselves. The enemy is very crafty, and he deceives believers into ways uh, to sell themselves short while they are thinking that this is the way that they will have more true self-worth. So no matter what the enemy has to offer, let's remember that his hope is to have believers sell off 
or give in exchange their entire inheritance for something that is incomparably less valuable and also short-lasting. So, in conclusion, when we obey God, we have to know that blessings are guaranteed. Provision is guaranteed even in difficult times. But if we try to take another approach, there is no guarantee for us to claim. We must do what God says if we want to be assured of his divine blessings and protection. And now more than ever, we need to increase our level of faith, especially if we are facing challenges. And we must make you know, these instructions given to us in the word, our way of life. So we are truly called on to always stand on the word of God. We are called to always exercise our faith. We are called always to listen to the Holy Spirit and always to obey what he tells us to do. And as we do these things, we will develop character. We will learn the various schemes of the enemy and what to do when we are challenged. And God's supernatural blessings will kick into action. We won't have to go and, and wrestle and ask God, bless us, bless us. No, because of our obedience because we are doing what we are supposed to, God's supernatural blessings will kick into action and we will soon find a river of supernatural provision flowing to us. Hallelujah. Which is what God always intended for us, for us to be blessed, to be overflow, so that we can turn around and be a blessing to others. Hallelujah. But it all starts with obedience. And obedience starts with the heart. It is a matter of the heart. Hallelujah. Praise God. I believe that maybe next week we are going to continue to look at the subject of obedience and look at another aspect of it. Amen. Let's go ahead and close now in prayer. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your word to us today, for reminding us to trust you with all of our heart, O Lord, and not to lean on our own understanding. Because this covenant that we have, O Lord, this new covenant, does not depend on our ability to keep it, but on Jesus, our Lord and our Savior's ability to keep it. So just like Abraham, O oh Lord, just like David, we have a covenant with you, the Almighty God. And we can come into agreement with your word and be fully obedient 
being fully persuaded that what you have promised us, you are able to perform. And just like David, Lord, we can stand on that covenant and defeat, oh God, any circumstance that stands in our way, no matter how big it looks. Because, Lord, our covenant is better. Because we are fighting, Lord, from a position of victory, oh God. Not for victory, but of victory, because we have already won. And having this revelation, oh Lord, established in our spirit, Lord, we thank you that we are enabled to obey you and to walk in peace, no matter what the circumstance. And Father, we thank you that because of this, we are able to fight a good warfare, to fight effectively in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that the greater one is in us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this confidence of your love for us, oh God, so that we can rest assured that regardless of the battles and the difficulties that we may face, that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. We give you glory. We give you honor. We give you praise for what you have done and continue to do in our lives, for your glory, and for our rejoicing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ. Throughout all ages, world without end. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God bless you. Thank you for being with us today. We invite you to join us again next Wednesday at the same time. Good night.